Last week we um, had a view from the cross, and that was a view from the foot of the cross. It's so good to be with you, church family, to be in person. I don't think I'm ever going to take that for granted again. And uh, I'm delighted that many of you are tuning in from home. I want to encourage you to turn with me to the text we're going to be looking at, Isaiah chapter 53. We're actually going to be starting in 52, so if you find that Isaiah 53 passage, uh, you will be in the right place. Yes, Bridge Kids, thank you very much. I'll, I'll start remembering, but you are dismissed. We're glad you're here. In 1855, a court case that was based in Chicago captured the intention of the entire nation. The case actually started in 1845 when there was a settlement, and then it came up again in 1847, and there was another settlement. And then in 1853, it came up again, and there was another settlement. But in 1855, it was in Chicago. And it was called the Reaper case. Not the Grim Reaper. This was a mechanical reaper. And it was really a big deal in those days. And it focused on farm equipment invented by Cyrus McCormick. It was a high-stakes event. And so they brought in the best legal minds in the country. They were all from Ivy League schools back east. And since the judge was from Illinois, they this team of legal minds decided to invite a local guy, uh, somebody from Illinois, some small-town guy, to be on their team so that, you know, just to show that they cared about people from Illinois. When the uh, local Illinois attorney arrived, um, his teammates were stunned. He was poorly dressed. He was disheveled. He had a small-town accent, and he spoke with folksy vernacular phrases. The Ivy League lawyers um, called him a country bumpkin. So they decided that their strategy would be, instead of employing him, they were going to avoid him if they could. And uh, one of these um, Ivy League lawyers was named Edwin Stanton. And he said... Let's do away with this long-armed ape. So they decided not to invite him. Anytime they were taking meals together, they didn't include him. And they often told him the wrong times to show up at court so that he would walk in late. Edwin Stanton did win the case, and he went on to become one of the greatest legal minds of our country and, and also of politics back in those days. He actually went on to become the Secretary of War during the Civil War. But the last laugh was on Edwin Stanton, because that local attorney, the country bumpkin, was named Abraham Lincoln, and he became the president, and Edwin Stanton served under him and Abe was the boss. That's the same thing that happened in Jesus' day. He caught people off guard. They didn't see or understand who he was and what his potential was. Um, E.W. Hengstenberg made this quote. He and uh, this, he wrote this 
um, I think around 1828, a young man, when he wrote it, he says, we have now come to a portion, a portion of Scripture, which may be regarded in many respects as the most important of all Scriptures of the Old Testament and better adapted than any other to lead us to a right understanding of the whole. What is he saying? He's saying this passage unlocks the Old Testament and opens the door to the New Testament. It, it, be, it displays what God's purposes are. And uh, we see the Old Testament looking forward to the time of Jesus. And we see the New Testament documenting the life of Jesus. And then we see um, the apostles like Paul and Peter explaining the significance of the death of Jesus. So uh, I want to read the passage uh, just before we start. And so uh, Isaiah chapter 52, uh, verses I'm going to start with verse 13. And um, Isaiah begins, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand." Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray and each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, we're going to look at this uh, section this morning, and uh, we're going to look at the last half of the chapter next week. We're going to begin verse 13 through 15. God's servant identified. God's servant is identified. And um, verse 13 is the summary. It, it, it is... Uh, the outcome of the servant's life, God's servant. And it's, it's a, an overview of all. And we come to verse 13, and God is speaking. And he said, see my servant. God's servant will act wisely. Who is this servant? Well, I'm just going to jump right to the answer. It is God's son, fulfilled in the person of Jesus. He will act with great wisdom. He will act wisely with exceptional prudence throughout his life. And he will bring great success, a great victory. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And it just jumps through his life to the end. He will be raised. He will be lifted up. And he will be exalted 
by, that, by the way, that, phra that phraseology is only used of God in the Bible in Isaiah chapter 6. This is a summary of Jesus' life. Now think about this. Isaiah writes in the 8th century B.C., 800 years before the life of Jesus. So if you were uh, alive in Isaiah's day, this would really be hard to piece together, the information that has been given here. It's predictive. It's, it's prophetic. And um, it says he will be raised. Um, he's going to be resurrected. What is that going to look like? They don't, they don't have any idea in Isaiah's day what this is about. He will be raised. He will be lifted up. He's going to be ascended into heaven. And he is going to be highly exalted, highly, highly, highly exalted, so much so that only God deserves that kind of um, attention, exaltation, and worship. Who would have ever anticipated that God's servant would be raised from the grave, that he would ascend into heaven, return back to heaven, and that he would be highly exalted? In John chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, uh, Jesus alluded to this passage. He says, um, I have spoken to you of earthly things. He's talking to Nicodemus, John chapter 3. He's the one uh, that Jesus said, you must be born again. And, and Nicodemus says, how can that be? Can I go into my, my mother's womb a second time? And, and, and Jesus explains to him, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? And that's what he's talking about, being born again so you can enter the kingdom of God. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, referring to himself. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, Exodus chapter 21, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. This is early in Jesus' ministry. What does that mean that he's going to be lifted up? Well, he's talking about Isaiah 53. or Yeah, uh, Isaiah 52 actually right here. That everyone believes may have eternal life in him. And so uh, in Moses' day, um, in, in Exodus 21, the situation was um, there was a plague on the camp of Israel and snakes had invaded the camp and uh, people are dying. And it's, about, it's, it's a plague that God allowed to happen because of their disobedience. God told Moses to make a bronze snake and then to put it up on a pole and then to have the people of Israel come and, and gaze on this, this pole to look at the bronze snake. And that required their obedience and it required their, an act of faith. And God healed them and God delivered them because they followed through on God's in instructions. Um, Jesus uh, goes on to say that, the, um, so Moses lifted up in the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So that everyone who believes may have eternal life. He's talking about the gospel and it's, they have no clue what he's talking about yet, but he's beginning to make the offer 
of how to get connected with God, how to be born again, how to get connected with the eternal spiritual world, the true and living God. Isaiah continues writing in verse 14, his appearance. Uh, God is speaking here in verse 14. Just as there are many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So we've started with this overview of Jesus' life, and now we go right to Good Friday, or that Friday, the day of the execution, um, the day of the executioner that we heard from. Um, it's on this day, beginning early in the morning, that this servant, God's servant, would be brutally beaten. He would be disfigured. Um, he would not be recognizable in his appearance. Um, sometimes people, you know, focus on the cross and they talk about how brutal it was. And there is a real place for that. And sometimes people kind of gloss over it. What God says here in Isaiah, it was really bad. His appearance was really bad. Um, he's been beaten. He, his back has been ripped open. Remember, he's been scourged. Um, he's been mashed. He's had many blows. And um, his face would be quite swollen. His appearance was appalling. It was distressing. Who could have imagined that God's choice servant, God's Messiah, God's anointed one would be in this place? And it was really hard for Old Testament saints to understand all of messianic prophecy about God's anointed one. Because they were looking for a deliverer, a mighty savior who would throw off their enemies. And, and, and there is that in the Old Testament. But there is this stream of suffering as well. And it, it doesn't make sense. There were many early uh, Jewish scholars who understood this to be the Messiah. But around the 10th century, another scholar came along that became very popular, and uh, he says this is not Messiah, this is a nation, the nation Israel. Um, just to remind us, look at John 19, and this is uh, what was happening to Jesus then Pilate took Jesus and, and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe. They went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. To say they had him flogged was put up very mildly because that was, that was a time-consuming and extremely brutal. And as I mentioned uh, earlier, a few weeks back, some people just died right there on the spot. That's how bad it was. Um, his impact, the impact of this, this servant's life, God's servant, verse 15, so he will sprinkle many nations. This is another thing that would be hard for the Israelites to understand, uh, to put it together humanly. God's servant who would be wise, God's servant who's going to be lifted up and exalted, how is he going to sprinkle many nations? Now, this kind of sprinkle is not the same as having a sprinkle for your second child. 
In the Old Testament, um, priests would sprinkle sometimes water, sometimes blood, sometimes oil on different objects or people, and it was an act of ceremonial cleansing. It wasn't to, to wash the dirt off. It was to show that this was ceremonially cleansed or now considered to be holy, now, now to be considered to be usable in the service of God, sprinkled. Well, this, this, this servant of God is going to sprinkle many nations. And one of the inter- this is about spiritual cleansing. And one of the interesting things about this, it's the nations, it's the non-Jewish people that was really hard for, for Jewish people to understand in the 8th century and in the 1st century. They didn't, didn't see this coming, even though it's been in the Scriptures. To sprinkle many nations. Um, and, and that's going to happen when Jesus, is, Jesus dies and, and His blood is shed and it pays for the penalty of sin. And, and then He can offer, offer spiritual cleansing to all people uh, everywhere. And then he goes on to say, and kings will shut their mouths because of him for what they had not been told they will see and what they have not heard they will understand. Kings referring to leaders of the nations, the, the, the Gentile people, the non-Jewish peoples in the world, and that's most of the people in the world. Uh, the kings, the great men, men of status and position will one day be amazed one day they're going to hear about God's Son. And their history is moving toward that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. One day every knee is going to bow. Every king ever born is going to identify who Jesus is, and they're going to bow before him, whether they do it with joy and worship or whether they do it in extreme humiliation under his judgment. One day, many will understand. They will be in awe of God's servant. So God's servant is identified at the end of chapter 52, and we come to the beginning of chapter 53. God's servant is despised. And um, Isaiah 53 begins with a question. And now the question is, is from the nation Israel. The nation Israel is speaking out here. In the future, looking back at this time of God's servant. Verse 1, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The question is about belief. The question is about faith. The, the question is about trusting God's message. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord specifically looks at the power of God, and in Scripture it especially looks at the power of God to deliver His people. His arm, His strength is revealed. He shows off. He does things that gets attention. That's what He did in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, when he delivered um, God's people from Egypt. And he, he, there were 10 plagues on Egypt. God's power was shown, and that power was displayed against the gods of Egypt, and God's people were set free. 
It was, it was the arm of God. And now it's being revealed in the first century. God's servant, as he shows up, has revealed the arm of God, and it's not what they expected. They didn't, they didn't expect this lowly person. They didn't expect this suffering guy to reveal the arm of the Lord. But he did. He performed miracles. Lots of miracles. Just showing God's power, drawing people to listen to the message and the messenger. And ultimately, the resurrection is perhaps the greatest miracle of all time. The arm of the Lord displayed in the servant. But not, not a lot of people believed. There was a remnant, even in the first century. People even saw Jesus face to face, and they heard his words, and many still didn't believe. Yes, many did believe. A lot of people didn't believe. And that's the question. Looking back, how did we miss this, the nation says. In John chapter 12, verses 37 and 38, even after Jesus had performed so many signs, the arm of the Lord, in their presence, they would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, Isaiah 53, 1, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's fulfilled in Jesus' lifetime. In Romans 10, 16, but not all the Israelites accepted the good news. This is the Apostle Paul looking back. He says, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? You would think if anyone would believe, it would be the nation Israel. It would be the Israelites. Verses 2 and 3, again, Israel is speaking from the future as if they're looking back in history. And there is a great miscalculation, verses 2 and 3. Israel, as a nation, made a great miscalculation. Verse 52, uh, 53, verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He is God's servant. It's Jesus. He grew up before him, meaning God the Father, like a tender shoot. You know, there was life there, but it wasn't impressive. It, it didn't look like it was necessarily going to be anything great. We couldn't tell that. Like a root out of dry ground. Well, the ground was dry, and there was a root, but it doesn't look like it's going to survive. And the dry ground is kind of representative of the spiritual environment of the day. It didn't look like this is when God's deliverer, or it didn't look like he should come from Nazareth. What good thing comes out of Nazareth? He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Uh, God's servant didn't come with the world's trappings. He did not come with a royal pedigree or a high position. He was not taller or more handsome than other men. He was not rich and famous. He did not look like a superhero. He was just ordinary. He didn't have a formal education. He was self-taught. Israel missed. They miscalculated God's 
servant. Um, think about this. Israel was so focused on what was cool and what was like normal in their society that they missed what God was doing. They missed hearing, they missed seeing. Is that a danger for us? That we can get so focused on somebody's looks or our own looks or our physical appearance or physical fitness or so focused on worrying about people who are beautiful or who have status or power or authority that we don't see or we don't hear what God is doing because we've got our focus in the wrong place? That's the real easy thing to do, isn't it? With nightly news and social media and all that we see in our world. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. This is God's servant. He, he ended his life being despised and rejected. He suffered. He experienced excruciating pain, and it just seems like he was a major of failure as we watch this happen. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. It was so bad on Good Friday that people looked away from Jesus on the cross. They couldn't bear to see how sickening it was. It was desp despicable. Looking back, the nation admits they had miscalculated. They thought he was just a country bumpkin. Lastly, in verses 4 through 6, God's servant is, is wounded Again, the, the nation Israel continues to, to look back uh, from their future position. And we see the curse in verse 4. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Uh, we considered him punished by God, stricken uh, by him and afflicted. This just made sense for, for most Jewish people in the first century. How could this be? Everything we know. Uh, this just proves that this, this man is under the curse of God. But now looking back, they get it. Now they understand God's servant suffered for them. Jesus took the pain. He, he says he took up our pain. That's plural. That's the nation. He took up our pain and suffering and and. That, that, that Israel deserved, and he took it on himself. And, and while they did that, while he did that, they viewed him as he's just getting what he deserves. He deserves God's wrath. He deserves punishment that comes from God. We all know that anybody uh, who hangs on a, on a wooden stake is cursed by God, because that's what the Old Testament says. Um, Jesus committed blasphemy. I mean, we all know that. He said he was God, and he was a nice guy, but he really wasn't, and he committed blasphemy, and he deserved what he got. Galatians 3.13, the Apostle Paul reminds us, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone 
who has hung on a pole because Jesus had to become a curse. Uh, he, he, he became a sin offering. And, and when he did that, when the sin of the world was on him, he was a, a curse. He, he became a curse for us. Verse 5, we have his piercings. He did not wear piercings. He was pierced, okay? His piercings, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for, for our iniquities, another uh, synonym for sin. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. He didn't get what he deserved. 800 years before Christ, it would have been hard to understand what it would mean for God's servant to be pierced. I mean, nobody was thinking crucifixion. No, didn't cross anybody's mind 800 years before. Wouldn't have crossed Isaiah's mind, even though God is using him to bring out the message. But the prophet was right. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was nailed to the cross by an executioner. He did it for us. He was not guilty. He did not deserve punishment. Yet the punishment that he took brought us peace. We get the benefit. The Apostle Paul says, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's about a new relationship. It's, it's about a new life. It's about a, an eternal relationship with God, a spiritual relationship. Um, it happens when, what I referred to earlier that Jesus said, when we are born again, given a new spiritual life, one that we didn't have before. And then uh, Isaiah writes, and by his wounds we are healed. His wounds, the wounds that he received during his suffering and crucifixion that lead to his death. There's nothing unique about the wounds that bring healing. It's that whole process of the suffering death that brings the healing. It's not physical healing. Now, sometimes you hear, I don't know what you believe, but sometimes people say there's physical healing in the atonement. This is spiritual healing in the atonement. God heals lives God restore and rebuilds lives. He forgives sins and gives a whole new spiritual set of resources. Yes, God still heals. He does. And God can heal whenever he wants to. But physical healing is not guaranteed and it is not promised in this passage before us. The Apostle Peter refers to this in chapter 2, verses, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. We've seen this. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him, to his Father, who judges justly. Next slide. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. That was his purpose, that he would die to sin so that we could have something better, so that we wouldn't experience the consequences of our sins. And by his wounds, you have been healed. 
And he's talking about all believers being healed spiritually. And then we come to the last verse in this section. It's his atonement, verse 6. And Isaiah writes, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. In verse 6, we have the gospel. By the way, I, you know in Isaiah, um, Isaiah is referred to 80 times in the New Testament. Many of those are in the passage we're looking at. Uh, we all like sheep. You know, sheep need a shepherd. They need a leader. They need a protector. They need somebody to care for them because they don't manage well on their own. They tend to wander off. They get into trouble. And sometimes they get lost. And sometimes they get attacked by wild beasts. And uh, the, Isaiah's point is, we're just like that. We need a shepherd. And that's why God offers to be a good shepherd for us, a great shepherd. And we have a tendency to wander off, don't we? We have a tendency to do it our way, to go our way, instead of following God's instructions. I read about a newer form of corralling sheep that's, uh, I think, 21st century. It may be 20th century, I don't know, but... One of the things that has been used is uh, putting eight-foot grids on the ground, steel grids, because sheep won't walk over them. It was brilliant. And then one sheep decided to lay down and roll and rolled right over the grid and was free. So guess what? Who's watching? A couple of more try it. They roll over the grid. They escape. The whole herd escapes and, and goes into town. The shepherds come, corral them all back up, take them back home. Guess what? The next day, same thing. One after one, they just roll across the grid and leave. And we're just like that. And one of the one of the bad outcomes there is some of the sheep were actually attacked and killed uh, when they escaped that particular time. And uh, we all like sheep. We walk away from God. We do our own thing. God has a way and we have a way. And here's the gospel. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All. The Lord put our sin, our iniquity on Jesus when he died. The gospel in one verse in the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 5.8. He said, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was because of God's love. These are the implications into the New Testament period up to this very day. Because of God's love, what Jesus did for us in the first century. Demonstration of God's love. Christ died for us. While we were yet 
still sinners. It wasn't because we were good. It wasn't because we were holy, because we were better than other people or that we deserved it. It was because he loved us. And, and, and this is, by the way, the exchange life. Jesus' life for your life. Jesus' life for my life. Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, uh, Paul writes, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. There's that atonement is this whole idea. See, God is holy, and we are not. And if we're going to be in a relationship with him and be close to him, that has to change. And the way God, God is the one who solved the problem, it was the work of God. It was the work of Christ. There had to be a redemption. And so God did it himself. He sent his son Jesus, and Jesus would die. And because of who he is, and because of his life is infinitely valuable, God poured out his wrath on Jesus, and Jesus took it all. All. And because of who he is, he can pay for it all, for all people, for all time, from the beginning until Jesus returns, for all people. And God's, it, God the Father is fully satisfied with the payment that Jesus made. It's called propitiation. Through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith, that's the key. Received by faith. This message has to be, be received. Isaiah said, who, who, who's believed our report? It still comes back that, to that today. Who has believed? It has to be received by faith. He, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Next slide. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, meaning those sins in the Old Testament were not punished until Jesus came along. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to, to be the just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. To be the just, God is just, perfectly just, the righteous judge. He understands total and complete justice. And we fall way short. And so what does God do? He becomes the justifier. He becomes the one who makes things right. And he did that through Jesus. Um, and we don't have to do it for ourselves. Some, sometimes people try to do it. They try to be good. They, they hope they're good enough to be accepted by God. And that's never going to happen because nobody, no matter how good they are humanly, can ever be accepted by God it's only through Jesus Christ, and it's by believing in Him. We've talked about the exchange life. His life for your life. If you're a Christ follower, that's exactly what He wants from you. He wants you. He gave Himself totally and fully for you. He gave everything. And that's what He wants from you. He wants you to give him everything. He wants you to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. He wants you to present your body as a living sacrifice for him. 
That's what the Christian life is all about. If you're not a Christ follower, he doesn't have that same expectation of you. What he wants you to do is to begin that relationship. He wants you to start. He wants you to step toward him and to reach out by faith and to trust him. Jesus died for you. Can you believe that? Can you receive that as true? Can you accept that? That your sins are paid for. And only he could do that. And that, that enables you to begin and to start and become a follower of Christ. And Jesus wants to be your Lord. And he wants to help you and he wants to lead you. But if you, you haven't come to faith in Christ, you need to start there. And as we close this morning, I just want to give anyone here or anyone at home an opportunity to put their trust in Christ. Uh, and I want to do that by just saying a prayer. And so I want to invite everybody in the room to join me in this prayer. And we'll just pray this silently. And um, if you're a Christ follower, I want you to just pray f for this time. If you're not yet a Christ follower, I want to invite you to pray with me silently from your heart. Let's bow in prayer. And if you're at home, you can, if, if you have not yet placed your faith in Christ, please pray with me this morning. This is just, it's not a magical prayer. It's just a way to express your faith, to talk to God. So let's pray. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner, that like the sheep that stray, I have strayed from you. I've walked away from you. And I understand that Jesus died to pay the penalty for my sin. Thank you. And I just trust Jesus right now. I believe what you said about your son. I believe that he died for me. And I want to begin a relationship with you. And, and I just um, ask you to help me to follow you and to become a person that you want me to be. Thank you for this opportunity that you've given me now. Thank you that you offer me forgiveness. Now, if you, if you prayed that prayer with me, if, you, um, if everybody would just continue to keep their heads bowed, if you prayed that prayer with me, would you mind just slipping up your hand so I could see you? If you prayed with me, just slip up your hand. Anyone else? Thank you. You can put your hands down. And so, Father, uh, so grateful for um, your, your faithfulness to us and uh, for those who've prayed this morning, whether they were at home um, or, or those who prayed here today, God, that they may have um, a sense of your presence right now. May they know that they are forgiven by you, not because they deserved it, because it was a gift from you. And Father, may they uh, just seek to follow you one day at a time. And then, God, for all of us, um, may we th just think carefully about what it means to have an exchanged life, recognizing that as a follower of Christ, we need to be totally in and fully devoted 
as we think about that today, as we, as we think about it this Easter season, God, uh, grow our hearts and get our attention and help us to focus on what it means to follow you. For every one of us, there, there are different things in our lives, and uh, yet there is one God, and, and you know us and love us and are helping us and just show us what those things are and enable us to be filled with the Spirit and to follow you. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.